0: Terrific, good evening, welcome. I'm Broman Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. We're delighted to have here Andrea Leadsom, leader of the House of Commons, to come and talk to us, to come and give a, a short speech, uh, then to have a short discussion with me, and then to go to the many questions that I know are there among you. She doesn't need much introduction, but let me say a few of the basic things. She's been uh, leader since June, since the election, Previously, she was Secretary of State for the Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. She's also been Minister for Energy, Economic Secretary to the Treasury, City Minister, and of course, she's MP representing South Northamptonshire since 2010. She was a prominent member of the Leave campaign and became a candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Let me leave the introduction there, and we're very kindly going to start off with your remarks, Thank you. and then we'll go to a wider discussion. Thanks very Thank much. you for being here.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening to share with you my genuine belief that, in spite of what some are saying, this will be a cooperative and collegiate parliament. There are, at times, very heated exchanges in the chamber, which can oddly even extend to my choice of clothing. But in fact, I do get on very well with Valerie Vaz, the shadow leader of the house. And the same is true for many front benchers. On all sides of the House. So, the cut and thrust of debate in the Chamber doesn't always reflect the rather more efficient work going on behind the scenes. So, for example, Valerie and I work closely on a number of House projects, and I think I can honestly say we are both driven by our shared desire for a properly functioning Parliament. And this gets to the very heart of what I would dearly like to see, and that is a Parliament that's going to work together for the good of the country. Our late colleague, Jo Cox, was so right when she said, we have far more in common than that which divides us. The need to work together means that the government will be listening and taking into account all views right across the House. Now it's often said that the leader of the House of Commons has two jobs. First, that of Parliament's representative in government, and second, that of government's representative in Parliament. And in the last two weeks, at the request of many different members right across the House, I was really pleased, and I just want to give you a couple of examples. We got the select committees up and running early. I extended the second reading of the EU Withdrawal Bill to meet the demand from members. And we've just provided time for a debate in government time on illegal traveller sites when we get back in October, which has been a topic of concern right across the House for quite some time. So these are just a few examples of where members share common ground and where my role can help to bridge government and parliament. Now, it won't have escaped anyone's notice that we in this parliament will be incredibly busy over the next few years. And I do suspect that the period between 2016 and 2022 will be the stuff of future PhDs and political textbooks. And there is no doubt that it will shape the next phase in the history of our great country. Very rarely does the opportunity come along to build on our long-standing principles of tolerance, democracy, and the rule of law, to seize fresh opportunities and forge partnerships with new and old friends alike. These are exciting and challenging times in a parliament of great opportunity and the job of this parliament will be to deliver on the vision set out by Theresa May of a country that works for everyone. So what does that mean for our legislative agenda? Well firstly, crucially legislation that allows us to deliver a successful Brexit, providing continuity and paving the way for a prosperous future. Secondly, tackling social injustice and discrimination to improve life opportunities. Thirdly, building an economy of higher skills, greater productivity and more rewarding jobs. Fourth, to strengthen where we can the precious ties of our union. And vitally, the fifth challenge is to continue tackling the threat of terrorism and keeping our country safe. So, the Queen's speech set out an ambitious programme of 27 bills and draft bills. And to accommodate this enormous workload for this Parliament, we agreed an extended session that will take us beyond the point at which we leave the EU. So despite the very different views expressed in the referendum, we do now all share a desire for the United Kingdom to to succeed as we leave the EU. And in doing so, we will have control of our own money, control of our own laws, control of our own borders, and as the Prime Minister has said, we will be a global leader in promoting free trade. And we have a very positive story to tell We're the world's fifth-largest economy, three of our universities are in the world's top ten. The UK's contract law is world-class, something that's critical for international business. The UK is the world's leading financial centre. And to cap it all, the Global Power City Index has confirmed that London remains the best capital city in the world. Now, there have been plenty of unhelpful metaphors created in the wake of the referendum... ...but I prefer to look at the evidence. And the evidence is encouraging. Since June last year, the UK has extended its lead as the number one financial centre in the world... ...with Deutsche Bank signing a 25-year commitment to a new London headquarters. BMW, Nissan and Toyota are all making significant investments in new production. Amazon and Google are both expanding their UK operations... And Apple have continued to expand their base in the UK. Business confidence is critical to our economy and a strong economy is the only way to keep the excellent public services that we all rely on. So passing Brexit legislation is a key step towards this new phase in our country's history. So I was delighted, truly delighted that this week we have made some significant progress both in passing the second reading of the EU Withdrawal Bill and in enabling the smooth functioning of parliamentary committees. But as the Prime Minister has made clear, this Parliament is about so much more than just leaving the EU. A strong economy and a fair society is at the heart of a country that works for everyone. So we'll also be bringing forward wide-ranging legislation to reflect this, such as legislation to embrace the new opportunities in emerging technologies, better services for those struggling with mental health conditions, and greater support for our armed forces families. So as chairman of the Parliamentary Business and Legislation Cabinet Committee, known as PBL for short, is my job to make sure that legislation like this is ready for introduction. You could actually call it the parliamentary dragon's den. Quite cool to have a dragon's den giving business managers and key cabinet colleagues the chance to stress test and scrutinise all the legislation that my colleagues plan to bring forward for introduction. And the level of scrutiny on the legislative programme is greater now than at any time in the last four decades. My role isn't just to make sure bills are ship-shape, but also to make sure they reflect the views of backbenchers and select committees And, of course, to make sure that MPs know exactly what the legislation is trying to achieve. So communication, working together, consulting widely, is going to be at the heart of the success of our legislative programme. As a very respected former leader of the House, Lord Young, said in an interview with this group a couple of years ago, one of the lessons, if you're coming to PBL, is don't wing it. And that's truer now than ever before. So a big part of the job is going to be steering legislation. But there's also various other aspects to the role of the leader. So, for example, today we've had a debate on the abuse and intimidation of candidates in the election, which was a truly appalling problem. This issue will not go away on its own, and I'm determined we're going to do more to tackle it. We do need to get more people, particularly women, to put themselves forward for roles in government and in local politics. And if they're going to receive the kind of levels of abuse that we saw in the last general election, it will be very off-putting for people. But there are other, lots of simpler pastoral issues like providing after school clubs and holiday clubs for MPs' children, particularly in the summer when schools break up at different times. Next year, we have a fabulous opportunity to celebrate the centenary of women's suffrage, which I'm certainly hoping to take a key role in. And then in my job on the House Commission, which is chaired by Mr. Speaker, there are some very big challenges ahead, like the restoration of, and renewal of Parliament. And of course, the need to keep all MPs and visitors safe and secure on the estate after the appalling attack we had earlier this year. So, before I conclude my remarks, I just want to come back to where I started. The result of the general election is quite simply that we now have a parliament that must work together. We have a huge task of delivering Brexit and a huge opportunity. ...to shape the kind of country we want to be after we leave the EU. Frankly, the public will expect us to conduct our debates in a grown-up fashion. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that political disagreement will somehow fade away. We've certainly seen enough of that this week to shoot that... ...if that was ever going to be in anybody's thoughts. But I do hope that Parliament can achieve proper debate that reflects the seriousness of the task ahead. So my message at this historic time is a very simple one. The government stands ready to listen and engage with all parties to work in the best interests of the country. There will be challenges ahead, but we can all come together to work towards a stronger economy, a fairer society and redefining our central place on the world stage. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much. Um, interesting speech, at an extremely interesting time. Um, let me start with um, one of your points that you put a lot of emphasis on throughout, saying, um, look, this is going to be, as you said, a cooperative and collegiate uh, parliament, you, you believe. And yet this hasn't been a week where um, that has been something that many, people in Parliament felt was the best illustrated. The opposition has said, in fact, I'm quoting Valerie Vaz, who you say you get on very very well with. On the other hand, she's called the government's performance this week jaw-dropping and said it's made Parliament look ridiculous. And I, I wondered what you would say to the central challenge of the opposition and many critics at the moment, that the government has done at least a couple of things this week to reduce the ability of Parliament to scrutinise
1: Well, I would absolutely refute that latter point. The the role of scrutiny in Parliament remains as strong as ever. And let's be clear, I know there's been a lot of criticism specifically around the motions passed two nights ago to ensure that the House legislation can pass smoothly through. Now, the motions that were passed were simply to say... By that, that, you mean to give the government majorities on these committees? Well, no, (laughs) no, to be clear, Bronwyn, not to give the government majorities on these committees. In fact, to have parity on even-numbered committees and where there is an odd-numbered committee, to have a government majority of one. The alternative, of course, is an opposition majority of one. And if you look at it logically, in that instance, the opposition, you would be lumping together as a group who would all, with one voice, oppose the government. So, so what we were proposing was a means of getting legislation to run smoothly through committees as an extension of the floor of the House. And I think the important thing to note here is the committees are to try and ensure that every piece of legislation doesn't need to be done on the floor of the House. But having gone through committee stage... The bill will then come back to the floor of the House for report stage. So there are many multiple opportunities for scrutiny Mm. and for debate. And I'd just like to make a final point on this. The Lord Jopling's report in 1992 Mm. on the governance Mm. of the House made very clear, oppositions must be able to scrutinise, but governments must have a realistic opportunity of getting their business through, and that's all that those motions were seeking to do. So scrutiny absolutely remains sacrosanct, and there's been no attempt whatsoever to undermine that. And just very final point, there are precedents. I, I spent my summer recess reading through back copies of Hansard from 1976 and 1995, where similar but not the same occurred, And, of course, there are clear precedents, and I've no doubt, in future years, perhaps not for decades, but there will be the need to look again at how you can get smooth passage of legislation through Parliament.
0: Well, thanks for that. Let's go to the withdrawal bill itself, because that's the second prong of people saying, look, you're depriving Parliament of its ability to scrutinise. Obviously, it's gone through its second reading. A tonne of amendments have Followed, And the thrust of a lot of those amendments is trying to get back some opportunity uh, for scrutiny. Um, What what kind of amendments within those do you think um, you might uh, think would succeed in the end?
1: So, you're right. I I think there's Mm 130-some-odd amendments, a huge Mm -hmm. number of amendments, and and I'm absolutely not surprised. But just to to, to set the scene, i have come on to your... your Your question very specifically, but just to set the scene, it seems to me that at this very critical time for our country where we're leaving the EU, where we do have different views on whether we should be doing that or not... Actually, a parliament that must work together, so a government that must listen to backbenchers, to opposition parties and so on, is actually very good for the public. It should be very good for people who took different views in the referendum to see that this government is going to have to work together, to see the, if you like, the revitalisation of parliamentary scrutiny, that the parliamentary arithmetic has delivered um, to this Parliament. So I think it's a good thing. It's very healthy for our democracy. But in answer to your question, well, maybe but people might want to see that
0: their views, um, particularly if they disagreed with the government, were being properly represented. But, 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 and but that's, what, that's and what I'm
1: saying is that that is mm. the case. The parliamentary arithmetic mm. ensures, mm. you know. So, for example, if the government had a huge majority, then people would not. So it would be very easy to just overturn scrutiny and opposition mm. amendments and and so on and so on. But the reality of this Parliament is that this. Um, This group of members of Parliament, wherever they sit, whether they're on the Conservative backbenches, whichever opposition party they're in, they can feel confident that the government will be listening, because for the government to achieve its legislative programme, it will need to take into account views across the House. And, And in the EU Withdrawal Bill, I think that is absolutely the first example we'll have. But just to deal very specifically with that bill... Clearly, what it's seeking to do, very clearly, is simply to pick up the body of EU legislation and bring it into UK law such that the UK statute book can work operably on day one after we leave the EU. So many of the so-called Henry VIII powers are simply to be able to change wording on statutory instruments that make references to EU bodies that would need to be replaced by reference to UK bodies. So that, that is quite a significant part of the... ...of the so-called Henry VIII powers, so it is simply because that work needs to be done in an orderly fashion. Then, of course, there are other um, delegated powers that seek to allow for the negotiation. And what those delegated powers do is to very tightly define, including with an end date on those powers... To make sure that they're very specifically um, guiding ministers only to be able to make changes that facilitate the orderly withdrawal from the EU and with a sunset clause on them. So people talk about Henry VIII powers. One thing is absolutely for sure: Henry VIII powers are not unique to this Parliament. You know, in the last session, around half of all legislation mm-hmm. contained Henry VIII powers. It's been a feature. For a very long period of time. But the sheer volume of, course, of this, I mean, yeah. the, cha-
0: the challenge that people are making is look, the government has given itself the right, what some people have called a power grab, you know, to amend a lot of primary legislation with, uh, with secondary
1: legislation and in a way that avoids scrutiny. And this is, is the sheer scale of it. Yes, but, but, but it's th- th- those things aren't actually correct because. Um, One, it's not a power grab. Henry VIII powers are not unique. They're very, very commonplace. They've always been used. A good example of that is the 2016 (coughs) Psychoactive Substances Act, which has what you would call Henry VIII powers to enable government to list new Mm. legal high drugs as soon as they become known about without having to go back to... um, ...create new legislation around that. So that you could define as a Henry VIII power... ...but these are practical measures... Mm. ...to enable during a time-limited negotiation... ...for the government to be able to take measures... ...that are directly relevant... ...and very specifically set out to be directly relevant... ...to making that negotiation operable. So I absolutely accept the point... ...that it's a, a huge amount of legislation... ...and it is complex. But I think the other thing to say is that... ...even in this area... Um, very early days, the government has provided eight days with eight hours per day of protected time. So that's 64 hours as compared to 39 hours and 17 minutes or something that was Mm. given to scrutiny of the Lisbon Treaty. So it's a great deal of scrutiny time that's being given. We've already made clear that we'll listen very carefully if that's Mm. not enough and Mm. think about providing more time. And very importantly, the government's also looking closely at suggestions, constructive Mm. suggestions, about how we can manage... A sort of a, a further look at different mm. delegated mm. legislation to try and prioritize which ones are really Mm. material, and which ones are actually, in the scheme of things, quite trivial, as as I mentioned, the sort of tweaking of a word Mm. here and Mm. there. Mm. So I think the government is listening. We've been very clear that we are listening. And so I think whilst there's been a lot of shouting and screaming about this, the reality is that um, the government is taking very careful account Mm. of constructive Mm. views across Parliament, whilst obviously trying to resist those... Amendments such as we saw from the opposition on Monday night, on Tuesday night, that are merely to try and wreck Britain's orderly exit from the EU. Mm.
0: Uh, thanks for that. Well, I was asking about uh, the amendments themselves, and as I said to you earlier, we had John Burko, Speaker of the House here at lunch today, and I was asking him about what um, kind of amendments um, he thought should be encouraged. And he, doesn't, he doesn't pick them at committee stage, which now follows, uh, but he does at a report stage. And he said, well, look... Ones have got a certain level of support. I I look at at how many people have signed it, what kind of breadth of support is it cross-party, and and how senior, perhaps, are the MPs behind it, and and the sense that the amendment represents an important issue that needs resolution. Do those those
1: things chime with you? Do do that seem reasonable? Absolutely. I mean, it is for the Speaker to choose um, amendments, um, and he uses his own methods. I wouldn't kind of Mm. seek to advise him on how to do it but of course Mm. as we all know there are a number of amendments being put forward which are simply trying to prevent us from leaving the European Mm. Union and the problem with those sorts of amendments is that we are leaving the European Union, we've passed the article 50 bill which means that we have triggered our intention to leave the European Union so now an attempt to wreck the legislation is actually merely an attempt to ensure that we can't leave the European U- Union in an orderly fashion, and that's what the government is seeking to do.
0: Let me ask you, it's been too lively a week for news, um, though many are these days, um, but one other thing that has come up is this question of opposition day motions, and I wondered if you could clarify this, of whether it is or is not government policy not to... Um, uh, Conservative MPs not to not to vote in them. You were talking to Vicky Foxcroft uh, earlier today, I think, um, um, uh, saying that she shouldn't take her reading of government policy off Twitter, where there's a certain amount going on about this. But uh, you tell us, is, is it government policy or not um, uh, no, to we, vote we, on, on I, I Opposition was, Day motions?
1: I, I was actually very clear, I think, at business questions this morning when mm. this question came up, which is that yesterday, the Opposition Day... Um, Debates were two one on tuition fees and one on public sector pay. Now, everybody in this room will be aware that. The the discussions around tuition fees and public sector pay have engendered lots of debates in Parliament. We very recently had ministerial statements, new policies announced, and so on. They've been very thoroughly covered. In both of yesterday's debates, we had the Secretaries of State attended, responded, opened um, for the government side. We've taken the debates extremely seriously. We had as many speakers on the government benches, in fact, more, but our side, unfortunately, couldn't all get in. And, and and so we have taken these debates extremely seriously. Minister but there was sat there no, no and listened. point in a vote? Well, you know, a vote on an Opposition Day resolution is not binding on the government. And on these particular um, subjects, we took the view that they have been very clearly set out, that we very clearly listened, that we have addressed the policy issues in great detail, and therefore mm. we decided it was we did not need to also participate in an opposition day motion vote
0: mm. I mean the government's critics obviously would say look these are votes that the government was was, was set to lose and if I quote i'm not going to quote endlessly John Burko but one last uh, uh, one bit the rest of it on our website uh, he said it would be uh, very worrying if votes such as these were treated lightly or disregarded Not the debate the votes and, and so I just I, I'd like to be clear is this should we expect this to be government policy going forwards when such things come up or was it just those two
1: well Yesterday, I think I've probably explained, precisely, Mm. you don't need me to explain again why we took the view Mm. we did yesterday. And quite clearly, we will participate fully in Mm. opposition day debates, but there isn't a policy around whether or not we'll be routinely doing one thing or another. But just to be clear, we do take very seriously the subjects raised by the opposition. They have many different ways to raise issues. By the same token, we take very seriously the issues raised at backbench business days. And, you know, it's 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 absolutely the case that government ministers are listening. They're on the front bench. They make their own contributions. Our backbenchers contribute. Mm. The discussions are absolutely valid and a very important part of policy formation. Mm. Let's
0: leave Brexit aside for a moment. And this week's news. Um, you put quite a bit of emphasis in your speech on, on social justice and ended uh, at the wider programme that the Prime Minister has sketched out. Um, is there time to do any of that, given Brexit? I,
1: I think very much so, yes. I mean, we've me, already... Me uh, that you. Oh, thanks. Um, yes, I think both legislative and non-legislative, there's a lot that we've done and there's a lot that we're doing. Thank you very much. So, I mentioned um, Mental Health Act. Um, it's something that's very, very dear to my heart. I have a great interest in the perinatal mental health and um, you know the the Department for Health is doing some great work in supporting more mental health measures but I think there's a lot more that we want to do. The Queen's Speech does contain a mental health act that will seek to really put into practice the idea of parity of esteem. You know we have so many problems, societal problems that are linked to poor mental health. Um, Secondly our armed forces legislation that is seeking quite simply to provide flexible working arrangements so that people in the armed forces can manage caring responsibilities, other priorities and so on with their career in the armed forces. That'll be good for them as well as being good for um, retention and mm. so on. So that's another area of, uh, of justice. Um, you know, some of the work we've done to promote um, university attendance from particularly disadvantaged young people, you know, mm. there are now more... Um, disadvantaged young people going to Mm. university than ever before, which is something we're very proud of. Mm. Um, Issues like getting um, disabled people into work. There are more disabled people in Mm. work now than ever before. And, of course, all of these things are a matter of self-esteem, having a pay packet and so Mm. on, and actually trying to tackle some of the deep-rooted social Mm. injustice. And then Mm. the other thing I would point to is the work we're doing on skills and apprenticeships, Mm. trying to ensure that more young people start off with proper qualifications, that they can actually aspire to getting a decent job and having a decent life. So there's a lot of both mm. legislative and non-legislative work mm. that is already in hand. Mm.
0: And some, some of what you've just been describing, as you said, is the non-legislative. Yeah. Um, but some of it does uh, need legislation. Is there a chance to get anything that isn't Brexit through?
1: Oh, yes, very much so. Um, yes, I mean, the, the Queen's speech um, contains... 27 bills and draft bills, and um, if I remember rightly, I think at least around 10 of them are non-Brexit mm. related. And of course, there's the opportunity for further legislation as as um, issues arise. But yes, I, I, you know, it's certainly our intention that this Parliament is not just defined by leaving the EU, mm. as the Prime Minister has set out. Creating a society and a country that works for everyone is more than just leaving the EU. Although, of course, you know that does shape the next part of our country's future Mm. your confidence
0: and supply agreement with the dup covers brexit and it covers you know a few other things it doesn't by and large cover social policy do you have their backing to get a lot of this through
1: Well, I mean, that's a very interesting point, actually. And, uh, you know, with my chairmanship of the PBL committee, it won't surprise you to know that one of the questions I put to ministers when they come before the committee, trying to make the case to introduce legislation, that they do need to make sure that they have the backing of different stakeholder groups. Now, the DUP don't all necessarily um, have exactly the same interests, but ministers are required to have spoken to... People who have a particular axe to grind to, stakeholder groups to make sure that different political parties might be prepared to support us, either with amendments, with taking into account their particular Mm. interests, or to support us anyway. So um, in terms of social legislation, it's my genuine belief that there is very often quite cross-party consensus on some of that stuff. And whilst obviously we're always up against the desire to oppose for the sake of opposition, and secondly, the desire to, well, whilst you've got this bill, let's just amend it to include my favourite topic, which is X and Y and Z. Okay. Those are the sort of challenges that we do need to seek to avoid. But where colleagues are all sharing a view on whether it's um, you know protecting the victims of domestic violence or whether it's... Uh, to, as I say, provide more flexible working for the armed forces, it does tend to be the case that there is cross-party consensus on some of that legislation. So Mm. I I Mm. do certainly hope that we'll be able to Mm. pass that um, Mm. quite easily, Mm. relatively easily. Thanks.
0: You you talked in this about the ties of our union, Um, an interesting phrase, and said you want to work to strengthen this. Scotland and Wales have said that, uh, they're going to refuse legislative consent to the withdrawal bill and they're, they're not very happy with the consultation that they've, uh, they've had. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to ignore it, which point some people will shout constitutional crisis, or are you going to make concessions with them?
1: Well, there's, there's a lot of talking going on with our devolved administrations. And, um, you know, having previously been the Environment Secretary, I myself had some um, very good... Uh, roundtable conversations with other ministers from the DAs on the agriculture and uh, Mm. fisheries subjects and environmental subjects. And obviously, as you would expect, it's still relatively early in the negotiations with the European Union and therefore the discussions and the understanding on what our our colleagues in the devolved administrations will want from that. So these negotiations, they are proceeding at speed conversations are ongoing <laughs> and of course, as with Parliament we'll be listening very carefully to what our colleagues in the devolved administrations want to see happen
0: hmm. we, we, we might come back to that I want to turn finally to uh, before we go to questions, just this question of public trust in, in government and uh, indeed in, in Parliament and what you thought um, wh- what you thought the, st- uh, the kind of state of that was and what Parliament might do to improve it
1: I mean I I would actually come back to um, the point I've sort of the theme of really my conversation with you which is that you know the public do want politicians to carry out sensible discussions I mean you know we can argue about whether people love the banter in the chamber or whether they loathe the banter in the chamber you usually sort of get roughly 50-50. Some people like it, some people loathe it. But the reality is that, generally speaking, my sense is that people want us to get on with it. You know, the vote to leave the EU was taken. Um, We decided we were going to leave... And now what people want to see is for us to get on with it. And so in getting on with it, with the very complex parliamentary arithmetic, I just want to go back to my hope and my belief that this parliament, when it settles down, you know, it's still early days. I think we've only sat for about six weeks since the election, something like that. No, about eight weeks, actually, but since the Queen's speech. It's about six weeks since then. So, um, you know, it is my belief that as the Parliament settles down, we will actually get quite a business-like conversation going on to be able to deal with some of these big challenges. You know, this is an unprecedented time. It does require unprecedented cooperation. And I think trust in Parliament and trust in what we're trying to do will improve if people see that we are getting on with the job. Hmm.
0: Finally, you, you caused some headlines, or you got some headlines by uh, uh, suggesting the BBC should be patriotic. You know, what would you like the, B,
1: uh, the media to do? So, uh, you know, I am a massive fan of free speech. I would just like a bit of balance in the reporting. Let me use that word instead. I'm, I'm you know, I think it's it's just very important that um, reporting gives both sides of the argument. Okay. With that, thank you very much. Let's thank go you. to some questions. Um, we've
0: got one right here in the front. Uh, it's Masato- uh, excuse me. Can you can you wait for the microphone, please?
2: Thank you very much for uh, good presentation. Uh, it's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. Uh, my question is about UK approach to uh, Germany. So uh, it seems that the U.K. approach is like uh, we are good customers uh, for European Union, particularly Germany. Uh, we buy a lot of cars. Uh, on the other hand, from the German side, uh, their priority is keeping a single market. And so in the terms of this, uh, U.K. is enemy for or Germany, and so I don't think uh, it. It will work. Uh, so I mean, uh, excuse me, sir, your your, your uh, uh, question. We, yeah. we customer, we are good customer strategy uh, work. I I don't think so. Uh, how do you evaluate after a federal election? Angle maker will do to UK.
1: So you know, um, the UK and Germany are very strong allies. We work together as as parts of the European Union. The UK and Germany have always worked very closely together, and um, before the referendum, I had very good conversations with German members of Parliament about reforming the European Union and what they saw as the UK's role in it. We've been very strong allies. And that, I do believe, will continue after we leave the European Union. You know, the UK is not leaving Europe... And as the Prime Minister has said, we do want to keep that special partnership and we do want to seek a comprehensive free trade agreement that is as low tariff and low non-tariff barrier as possible. And that will be in the interests of all sides. And to those who say, well, why leave at all then? What we're seeking to achieve is to deliver on the will of the people, which is to take back control of our borders, our money, our laws, and to then be able to seek a greater role with the rest of the world. And there is a big world out there, something like 170 countries are not in the European Union. So there is a big opportunity for the United Kingdom, whilst not detracting from the close relationship that we have either, particularly with Germany, but also that special partnership that we hope to have with the European Union.
0: Do you think that the negotiations so far, which have obviously only just begun, but time is running out uh, already, uh, do you think, though, that they really live up to that? control of our uh, laws, borders and money. I mean, already we're talking about an exit bill, talking about uh, the European Court of Justice having some uh, possibly enduring role or a similar court having some enduring role. Um, Is the picture not much uh, isn't quite as, as clear-cut as you're saying. We're going to have to make some compromises.
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there will be compromises, but in terms of taking back control of our borders, I think that is quite um, clearly the case, at least being able to take, to take control over the situation of unlimited, uncontrollable immigration... In terms of our laws, it's quite clearly the case that the UK courts will take back control of our laws. And whilst they may take into account pre-existing EU law, as indeed they can take into account laws from other countries. So I think we are absolutely, definitely leaving the European Mm. Union, but the fact that countries do collaborate with each other, you can argue that that's sort of making it not very clear-cut, but we will be outside Mm. of the European Union. So those collaborations will be um, a, a mutual recognition of choice, convenience, collaboration, cooperation, mutual regard, and so on, and not something that we have to do because the EU is telling us to do it. Thank you. Question right at the back.
3: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Robbie Owen from Pinson Masons. I'd like to ask a question about the EU Withdrawal Bill and Henry VIII powers and uh, entirely agree that they're very well precedented um, and the irony, I suppose, is the biggest Henry VIII power of all is in the European Communities Act of 72 that took us into uh, the Union. Of course, that was seen as acceptable then. Um, But the the question is really this, in in terms of uh, can you give an indication of what consideration might have been given by ministers before the bill was uh, introduced in terms of whether they could um, try and anticipate the um, reaction that uh, uh, w- w- was delivered by improving, increasing the degree of parliamentary control over the uh, statutory instruments when they come through, having been made under that Henry VIII power, because there are, as you will as you know, a number of different types of parliamentary um, sanction or oversight or scrutiny of these SIs, and um, did, did the government consider if you know, they could be, increase the control given to them?
1: Um, Well, the government is considering very carefully, um, you know, so I I think the point is, to begin with, what we were looking at, there was all this talk of, oh, there's going to be thousands and thousands of statutory instruments, you'll never, you just won't ever get the time to pass them all. So there was a huge amount of work done to consolidate, to really rationalise the sheer volume of legislation. Now, we can't say with certainty exactly how many um, statutory instruments will be required, but it's significantly smaller smaller figure than the thousands, even, sort of, I heard figures of 30,000, 40,000. It's significantly smaller than that. And so to rationalise it, to make sure that those statutory instruments were necessary, to be very clear about what they were seeking to achieve, to be very clear about the um, limitations upon them, so whether it was to put in wording like they must only relate, you know, the, the, the changes that are proposed under the SI must only relate to what makes... Um, UK law operable after we leave the EU, the sunset clauses put on them so that they only endure for a couple of years after we leave, to make sure that they don't sort of carry on with these Henry VIII powers. Those were all done to try and front-end the concerns. And in addition, my PBL committee has done a huge amount of work to make sure that all SIs that are anticipated are understood up front that they're properly prioritised and that they're sort of properly in the correct buckets of easy, slightly more complicated, extremely complicated. So now we're at the point where the government is looking very carefully at what more scrutiny can be applied to them. And in particular, there were some interesting ideas that came out of the debates on Monday and Tuesday evening around the idea of some sort of triaging process. And the government's looking very carefully at that. I mean, again, you know, I know I keep saying this, but... This government will have to listen. Even if it didn't want to listen, it will have to listen. And it wants to listen. It wants to make progress on the legislation and to get buy-in. So actually, this really is the parliament that the public should be quite proud of and quite pleased with. Because in the end, views will be taken into account. Pitch for minority government.
0: (laughs) Um, I don't know about that. (laughs) The... um, (laughs) A question
3: here, uh, Matt Dathan from The Sun. Um, what do you make of John Burko's idea for a yellow card for rowdy MPs? And what do you make of George Osborne's um, comments wanting to um, see Theresa May chopped up in his freezer? And um, do you think that it sort of fuels the, you know, the abuse we've seen um, of female MPs? And Nadine Doris has, has just called for his conference pass to be, to be withdrawn. Do you agree?
1: So the first question, the yellow cards, I actually rather like the way John Burko deals with MPs. I think it would be a bit of a waste to just give him a yellow card. I, I love the way he says, you should take a medicament because it's just funnier. I think yellow cards would be rather boring, uh, so I prefer what he does now. On the other issue, um, to be perfectly honest with you, I would very much doubt that George Osborne said such a thing. I just, you know, I've known him for several years, and I just... I'm afraid you know it may have been a flippant aside or something like that, but for, for people to be suggesting he would really say something like that, I just very much doubt he did, and that's my view. Thanks. Over here.: mm.
3: Thanks, Robert Ead from the White House Consultancy. Um, Parliament's obviously risen today for the conference recess, and I don't think he's back until the 9th of October. Uh, Given the kind of pressures on the parliamentary calendar we're expecting with Brexit and other bills to come through, do we need to take another look at the recess dates?
1: Well, I'd certainly allow you to break that to the House. (laughs) I'm not sure that would be... uh it's, it's it's astonishing, actually, because, um, you know, it, it's very sort of popular to say, oh, well, MPs are just on holiday again. But, of course, mm-hmm. the reality is that our work in Parliament is one part of the job of an MP. So, you know, for example, tomorrow the House rises today. Tomorrow I have a drop-in surgery. I'm going to um, go and speak at a colleague's... Um, at, at a business meeting for a particular colleague. Uh, and, and I'll be racing around backwards, forwards and sideways. Next week I'm back here in this place trying to make progress with um, cabinet ministers on some of their Brexit ambitions, um, on other bills trying to, 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 to get that progress. There are other colleagues who will be visiting charities, businesses, schools. So this sort of popular myth that somehow MPs are now on holiday again, the reality is that in recesses they do get the opportunity to catch up on the workload in their constituencies and very much for very many of us it actually does revolve around helping individual constituents i mean i could i could give you stories that would make your hair curl about some of the awful problems that people have that they bring to their mp seeking help with and we do actually most if not all of us do go to great lengths to try and resolve those problems so recesses aren't time off I do, however, take your point that with the volume of business, do we need to actually be sitting longer? And as you saw this week, we've sat pretty long hours. You know, you don't necessarily need to cancel Mm. recesses, but you will have seen a few tired MPs walking around. And that may well be the case. And as I say, you know, we've given eight hours in committee time. Sorry, eight days in committee time for the committee of the whole House, so that means in the Chamber, with eight hours on each day protected. That's 64 hours over an eight-day period, plus you've got urgent questions, plus you've got statements, and anything else that crops up, which means those are going to be very, very long days for members. So I do think there is a balance. You know, There's a balance of uh, trying to ensure that members aren't so tired that they can't actually do the job properly whilst at the same time recognising that we're really going to have our work cut out in this Parliament.
2: <clears throat>
1: Thanks for that. Another question.
0: Oh, there were quite a few a minute ago. Have people, have people dried up? <laughs> um, absolutely. here. Yeah.
1: Uh, Catherine Haddon from the Institute for Government. Um, Not wanting to follow in Bronwyn's footsteps, well, wanting to, of referencing John Perko's talk earlier on, but he talked about one of the reforms from the Right Committee that's never been followed through on, of uh, changing um, the uh, uh, the Business Committee to um, making it more independent, to having his deputy to
0: chair it, what do you think about that kind of reform do you think there's any likelihood it was in the coalition 's manifesto, but we 've heard nothing about it since
1: is that are you talking about the recommendation that the um, instead of the usual channels deciding on the yeah pre, or the government deciding on the program well you see i mean it 's an interesting idea but I, I genuinely don 't see how it can work because you know as I, as I said earlier with the um, with the, uh, the standing committees, with the um, statutory, uh, the delegated legislation committees and the public bill committees, if um, the government isn't able to programme exactly how long there is for those debates, and they are voted on, of course, but if the government doesn't have control of that, I don't see how you could actually manage the legislative programme. So, again, going back to my PBL committee... I have both a forward look and a backward look. So I have a forward look between now and the end of this session, roughly the middle of 2019, and I'm looking at what bills will be coming forward during that period, so how can we make sure that roughly we're not overwhelming either House, because obviously you get some Lord starters and some common starters, and then also a backward look that's saying, what do we need to have achieved by roughly the middle of May 2019, and what do we need to do by when? And so... I I guess it, it, it's the, it's true that somebody else could do that work, but if that somebody else wasn't motivated to a successful completion of the programme, then it would make a bit of a nonsense of it being the government's programme because it would no longer be subject to the government's ability to influence it. So, in a way, you're giving the government the ability to say, well, well we could, didn't do it, we tried, but, you know, you guys just messed us around. So that's the problem, is it's not just a right of the government to do it it's also a responsibility of the government to to ensure that it gets its program through you know we proposed the queen's speech we won the vote it's now our duty as well as our right to make progress on the legislation it's also our duty to allow the opposition to scrutinize but not to kind of take charge and then sort of you know stifle the program and prevent us from actually achieving what we were voted to achieve. So I just genuinely don't see how that could work is my personal opinion. Thanks, here on the edge.
3: Thank you, I'm Ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, Why why is the government reluctant to uh, push ahead with the restoration of Parliament? It seems uh, it's it's sort of stalled now, being booted into the long grass and ultimately might end up costing more money.
1: So uh, it's, it's not the case that the government is stalling. It's an incredibly complicated project, as, as you can well imagine. And actually, I had the enormous pleasure of going down into the basement of the palace with a couple of engineers and with Rosie Winterton, who'd just been uh, elected as deputy um, speaker. So um, we went down there with our hard hats on, and it was absolutely amazing. As we arrived, there was this horrible smell <laughs> And there's water pouring down and we sort of rather laughed because we wondered if they'd done this to show us, to illustrate how, how dreadful it was. But of course the reality is that there are problems, you know, there are sort of leaks that spring up and so on. There is a lot of work to be done and what clearly has to happen is a proper evaluation of what the solutions are. There needs to be a very big um, project to restore it, but also to make sure that Parliament can continue to function whilst it's being restored. So it's a top priority for me. I spend quite a lot of time on this. Um, As you know, Mr Speaker chairs the House Commission that is reviewing this project, and I do want to make early progress, so I'm absolutely pushing for that. Here on the aisle...
3: Um, thank you very much. Uh, Alex Morales with Bloomberg News. I just wanted to push you a bit on um, the triaging system that you mentioned. I think it was introduced to the debate by Anna Soubry. And I was wondering how you envisage that could work, whether you think it would be a, a sort of joint committee of MPs from all parties who would who would get to sort of sift through the statutory instruments.
1: Um, I mean, I'd, I, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm just, I was raising it as an example of an interesting idea that came up in the debate. It's something that... Um, DexU ministers will be looking at, along with other suggestions that were raised for how there could be further scrutiny. And there's absolutely no sort of uh, decisions on, on that. But, you know, I just want to say again that it's very clear that the government is listening very carefully to suggestions right across the House on how we can make sure that um, parliamentarians feel comfortable with the way we're going to be scrutinising the legislation on the Brexit bills. Are there any more?
0: I kind of Come and go. Okay, well, let's, let, let me ask a, a final one then. Um, obviously, the election uh, this year didn't go the way um, the government had expected, um, or to, not in the numbers it had expected. What lessons do you think the government should draw from that, and the Conservative Party should draw from that, as it looks ahead through this Brexit period to the next election?
1: Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. We'd, we'd hoped for a... a A reasonable majority and we didn't get that and there are a lot of lessons learned both from a sort of party political point of view as you'd expect there are um plenty of reviews of what happened um i think the key thing though is you know the conservative party i think is very good at self-discipline when it matters and acting in the interests of the country. And I think, you know, the core lesson for us is going to be let's make a good job of this, let's make a good fist of this, and then um, we will hope that the people will give us their confidence at the next election. And ultimately, that's what I believe, that... um, Voters want to see is a is a competent government that's getting on with it that has a good heart and a determination to get the job done, and also a commitment to making life better for people. I think you know Theresa May was exactly right that for too long, too many people who who've been um, just about managing, as she put it, need to have more to look forward to. And in leaving the EU, I personally believe there are huge opportunities, and we'll be starting to see those in the next very short period of time as we settle down in the negotiations for departing from the EU and we start to see the trade opportunities with the rest of the world, but essentially providing competent and fair governance, I think, is going to be something that will be a feature of this Parliament and that we will hope then will give people the confidence to vote for us again. Mm.
0: And just within that, I mean, the polling numbers among younger voters um, are not good for the Conservative Party.
1: What would be your message to them? So... I feel that we've not made the case to young people for the importance of very careful fiscal management and that might sound a bit dry and dusty but you know I have uh, kids who are teenagers who are just starting out who are at university and what's very clear is that what labor managed to do was to persuade them that they can just have lots of free stuff And I deeply regret that because what we didn't do was to make the case for a sound economy and for the fact that, you know, when we came into office in 2010, we were spending, as a country, £165 billion a year more than we were taking in in tax revenues. We're still, this year, spending around £45 billion a year more than we take in tax revenues. So we've managed to reduce the overspend massively, but the consequence of any overspend is a growing debt burden. And so the reality that young people Mm. do need to have pointed out to them is either... We get that deficit down to nothing and start tackling the debt. Or we carry on spending and then we leave it for them to sort out in their lifetime, which would be a massive intergenerational unfairness. So whilst there are some enormous problems around helping young people to get a home of their own, helping them to cope with the challenges, whether it's from social media and privacy and some of the abuse that goes on online and the bullying and the mental health problems, some of the very current problems that young people have, but the big picture, the need to have sound finances and a country that lives within its means, it's in their interests that we actually manage to achieve that. And I'm afraid I think we failed to make that case. And so for me, as, as somebody who comes from a, a long uh, career in finance, I'm absolutely determined to try and make that case to all the young people I see. So over the ledsam dinner table, it's a very boring subject of economics and sound finances most evenings. Good to hear that. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thanks for your questions, but
0: most of all, thank you to Andrea Linsen. Thanks, Bronwyn.